Hey, if you are joining us online, we're glad you're doing that. We're going to be celebrating communion at the end of service. If you want to get your stuff, that would be great. Um, Lindsay talked about a wall of thanksgiving. If you want to give thanks, that would be over there. Uh, yeah, so I invite you to consider that. So when I was in the fifth grade, um, the elementary school, that was the highest grade we went to, I was a patrol boy. I was a safety patrol boy. And that means uh, the kids would walk to school and we would help them cross. We would stand there and we could tell them they could go on or they couldn't. And at a cool orange belt and a hat with fluorescent orange tape. And we thought we were something. And we were. Um, but we had to be kind of taught how to use What's an appropriate use of our authority? You just didn't do this and do that. And, and how do we act as safety patrol boys? Well, you know, we in some ways, when we come into God's kingdom, can feel like, you know, we're, we're part of something that's eternal. We're part of something that's going. And, and Jesus, in fact, has talked about what should be characteristic of us as members of his kingdom. Um, part of that is... Uh, Part of that kingdom, we're called to to sacrifice for him. We've been talking about that. And what I want to talk about today is how how are we supposed to act when we're doing that? We're making that sacrifice for the kingdom of God. So Lindsay mentioned, but if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Matthew 6, we're going to start in verse 16 and go through verse 18, asking this question of our text, how are we supposed to act when we sacrifice for God? Let me kind of get us up to speed where we've been, where taking time to focus on the Sermon on the Mount. We started several weeks back and talked about the fact that Jesus was on a hillside and he, and he was just sitting down and he began to say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it's about. And he began to list characteristics of those people who were approved. Blessed, we saw, approved. And they said that they've got characteristics like they're, they're poor in spirit. In other words, I'm not thinking a lot about myself because I realize I'm dependent on God. They're merciful. People who are in God's kingdom, they hunger and they thirst, not for more of this or that. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he listed about six or seven or eight beatitudes, characteristics of those who are approved. But then he said in verses 9 through 12, just be careful because you start living out these values and priorities. You're going to be out of step with the culture and you're going to be persecuted for that. Well, man, if we're going to be persecuted, why not just beam us out? Well, in verse, starting in verse 16, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And the salt in Jesus' day was a preservative. You rubbed it into meat to slow the decay. So church, individually and collective, you're the salt of the earth. You're slowing the decay. And then in case we didn't get the one more metaphor, he said, you're the light of the world. In the Bible, dark is everything evil, everything wrong. And you turn on the light, it's gone. Darkness is gone. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So church, he said to you, us, individually and collectively, you're the light of the world. Don't, don't set your light under a bushel. Set it where it can be seen. Man, Jesus, you're speaking with some authority. Are, are you doing away with the Old Testament? And Jesus said, absolutely not. I'm not. In fact, the whole Old Testament points to me. The whole thing is pointed to the need for a Savior. And I've come to fulfill it. I'm not doing away with it. Actually, I'm fulfilling it. And he took six teachings that the, either came directly from the Old Testament or that the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders of the day, had, had developed from the Old Testament. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to deepen them. I'm going to correct them. Like, like what? Well, let's take the commandment, thou shall not commit murder. Jesus said, you know, most of us haven't killed anybody. You think you're good. But I, I'm going to deepen that and say, if you've been angry, been angry with your brother, 
You're guilty. Guilty of what? Murder. Because it's as if you wish they weren't there. That, that's the genesis of murder, right there, anger. And then adultery. Well, I'm really proud. I've never been with another woman. Well, that's great. But if you've longed for someone else in your heart, you're guilty. And while we're on the topic, he talked about divorce. It was very easy for a man to write a woman a certificate of divorce. And she's just kind of out of luck. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus said, let, let, let me talk about divorce. I, I value marriage. Yeah, I allow for it, but it's never my desire. It's never my will. So I allow for divorce. Then the Sadducees and Pharisees and religious leaders, they had such a hold on the word of God, and they'd written 640 precepts. They, they developed a whole system as far as giving their word. You know, if I swear by this, I tell you, I, I promise you, but I'm swearing by this, that, that's a 60% chance that I'm going to follow through. And if I swear by that, that's an 80% chance. And, 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 and it got into this gamesmanship. What did you swear by? And Jesus said, stop, stop. Stop. Just do this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to do it, tell me. You're going to do it. If you're not, fine. Tell me no. But don't play these games. And then Jesus said, let me take the Old Testament principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That comes from Moses. You don't undo Moses. But Jesus said, I'm going to deepen it. In my kingdom, you, as my father, you give up the right to equal retribution. I slap you on the cheek. You want to, you're going to, no, 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 you turn the other cheek. You give up the right to equal retribution. And finally, Jesus said, sixth correction. You know, it's said that uh, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And probably that started with the Rome kind of occupying. They hated these occupiers. And, and it had been okay to hate certain people. Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not okay. I'd say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I, I'm, I'm redoing the teaching again because I have authority. And Jesus said, just, just underneath it all, here's the standard, uh, Matthew 5, verse 40, he says, you, you be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. Jesus takes obedience real seriously because it's, it's an indication of what's going on in our heart. And the standard is God, the perfection of God. If that doesn't make you go, whoa, I need help, I, I don't know what will. And, and that really brings us back to the first beatitude, doesn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, because you and I need God in a big way. More than we know, we need God. But all this teaching can make us think, you know, obedience matters to Jesus and what we're doing, and, and you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show out better than you, and it can develop this thing, and what about, how about, what about, what about? And so Jesus takes that on in, in uh, Matthew 6, verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, yeah, be, be careful about that. Um, because, you know, if you're doing that in the kingdom and it's kind of like, did you notice? Did you notice? Then, then you have your reward, and there are eternal rewards, and that's beyond the scope of this message for me to talk about, but, but you don't have any of that. If you're living for other people's approval, then you're not living for God's approval. It's one or the other. And then he applies that in three areas. First, he applies that in giving to the poor, and we talked about giving to the poor, and we backed that to giving in general. Don't be doing it in such a way to be noticed. He said, yeah, your right hand ought to not know what your left hand's doing. And that's a metaphor for it ought to be done in secret. Then he talked about prayer. Don't pray in such a way as, hey, hey don't you notice me seeking out God. And now he's going to talk about fasting. Fasting. Before I look at the specific verses, let me tell you that fasting has a place 
in the life of people who are seeking God. Jesus spent roughly 30 years on earth and for three years went into public ministry, and that public ministry started with his baptism. This was kind of his baptism, his initiation into ministry, and the next thing was he went into the desert for 40 days, and, and this whole you're going to be the Savior thing, it, it was going to be put to the test. Are you up, Jesus, to say no to Satan to, Father God, to follow God? Because th- that's where we failed. We said no to God, we'll do our own thing. Well, for 40 days... Jesus would be tempted. Are are you legit as a savior? During those 40 days leading up to it, he fasts because this is a serious spiritual endeavor. He's seeking God. It's his place as savior. Later, we see fasting again with the apostle Paul. Before he came to Christ, he was persecuting the church. In fact, he was responsible for the first murder, uh, murder, Stephen. Acts 7, it was Saul who gave his approval to Stephen being martyred for his faith. And, and then Saul began to serve papers on people, either throwing them in person or, or uh, executing them for their faith. And he is on his way to Damascus to serve papers. He's on the road to Damascus, and he gets a blinding light, and it's, who are you, Lord? It's me. It's Jesus. And Saul, who becomes Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament, realizes I've been persecuting. I've been executing people who have been following the living God. That, that's a burden. And so he fasts three days after that. Later, the church at Antioch sent out the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and a guy named John Mark. Now you think, oh, of course. Well, no, no. This is the first time the church was sending somebody out. And so the church fasted before they did that. Lastly, Paul and Barnabas were on... Uh, missionary journeys, and they, um, they need to leave, and they needed to choose elders <laughs> for newer believers, right, because they just come. And so they fasted. God, we need your insight on who to appoint as leaders of the church. Fasting has a place for God's people. But Jesus speaks to fasting then in Matthew 6, verse 16. Here's what he says. Whenever you fast, so he assumes we'll do it, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Remember, we talk about hypocrite as a, as a word from acting. You're playing a part. When you're acting, you're, I'm not really this, I'm playing a part. Well, Jesus says, don't play a part. And the part you're playing is, I'm fasting, so I want to look like, oh, you're really serious about God. But in fact, I don't care anything about God. I, I'm looking to get your approval that you might think I'm spiritual. So Jesus says, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect the appearance, their appearance, so what? They will be noticed by men. Man, you look really hungry. You really tell, oh, thank you for asking. I'm fasting because I'm serious about God. You've just gotten your reward. For I truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Well, that's impressive. You're seeking God. There's no eternal reward for that. So there's a place for fasting. Jesus says, be careful about fasting, though, because you can make an idol out of it. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it was known, they fasted on Monday and they fasted on Thursday. And apparently when they saw people that weren't fasting, well, that bothered them because, you know, spiritual people do. And so Jesus got confronted with that. This is in Mark 2, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to and said to him, him being Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours, Jesus, they do not fast? Well, here's Jesus' answer. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom, talking about himself, is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? No, they're celebrating. 
So as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is talking about himself. But, Jesus says, trust me, this will change. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. He ascends into heaven from them. And then they will fast in that day. I think there's a lesson there. Let's not be, yeah, fasting is commended. God's people ought to do it. But let's not put it on a scale. You're not, you're, you're not, you, oh, you're fasting. Oh, Let's not make this a marker of spirituality. God calls people at different times and different places to fast, but we make it something that it's not supposed to be, and it becomes an idol, and it's corrupted. So in fasting, and I back that up for any other kind of sacrifice, don't be like the hypocrites where you're just trying to get noticed, where people will go, wow. So then we know what not to do. Then how are we to fast? Here's Mark 2, verses 17 and 18. How about Matthew 6, verse 17? I was just testing. Didn't Carly do a good job back there? I confused her, and she was on top of that. We only get the best here at North Point. Thank you, Carly. Yeah, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Why? So that your fasting will not... Be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We fast, we give, we pray, we serve so as not to be noticed by others. Because our heart attitude is to please God and not to be consumed with people. So we're asking this question, when we sacrifice for God how we to act. We're to do it in such a way, as much as we can, that nobody knows. When we give, we pray, we fast, we serve, we do it in such a way, as much as possible, so that nobody knows. And like I said, I'm backing this up now from fasting to talk about other areas, sacrifice for God, and one of them is service. Now look, if you serve on the worship team, or you serve on the security team, or you serve greeting, or you serve in children's ministry, you're going to be noticed, okay? So do I not get any reward for that? No, that's not what that's saying. This is what this is coming after is our heart attitude. Why are you doing what you're doing? You can't help but be noticed when you greet, but do, are you greeting in such a way as, hey, hey you hoo you see me? Children's ministry. Why are you doing that? I mean, your parents are going to know that. And they may say, thank you for taking care of my kid. I, okay, that doesn't mean we're breaking the will of God or we're in sin. But what is your heart attitude in doing things? We're called to a privileged position in the kingdom of God. And yeah, in one way or another, we're going to be serving him. And we're going to be sacrificing. The question is, who's your audience? Why are you doing it? So most of you know, if you've heard me speak, I spent 15 years after college graduation working with Campus Crusade, which means I talked to individuals about financially investing in me, and we lived on a moderate, we weren't poor, but we lived on a moderate salary, and so after I graduated from college at Texas A&M, I got placed in Colorado, and, but most of my donors were in Dallas, so every spring in May and June, I would go back to Dallas, and these guys would take me to lunch, and they would say, Man, Andy, you got this degree and that degree from A&M, and you're doing this. Wow. Wow. You really are 
Serving the Lord. Now, let me say on the front end, I would work with campus crusade over again, a hundred times over. I didn't miss a thing. I can't think of a better way to spend those 15 years in my life. But I would be less than honest with you if I didn't tell you, I kind of like people going, whoa, whoa, you're, you're stuck. And all of a sudden, my ego, our ego gets fed. And very subtly, my motivation moves from serving God to, hey, did you notice? We live in a world, and, in, and with social media now, it is even more compounded, it is even more exacerbated. Look at me. Did you see my video? Did you see my picture? How many, how many likes did you get? How many, how many times was your tweet retweeted? How, I mean, I, how do you? And Jesus is saying, you can only serve one of two. You can serve God, or you can serve the world. You can't do both. And yet we live in this culture that we want to build collateral. Whoa, look at me. To that end, I would like us, again, to think about Jesus. And as we think about how do I live in this world where I say no to the affirmation and say yes to God, I would say we need to draw near to Jesus. So let me pull from his life. This is Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 32. It says this. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him, him being Jesus, all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Now catch this. And the whole city had gathered at the door. Let me stop there. Let me put this in terms. Jesus is trending. Okay? I mean, everybody, is get, they're getting better, and it's kind of like they're pulling out their phone, and I mean, you need to, you need to get here like this, and okay, and, 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 and that, that thing is being retweeted. And people are coming to see Jesus. Verse 34. He healed Many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not, not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is showing himself to be the Son of God. If God's going to show up, he's got to show supernatural power. And that's what Jesus is doing for you and for me and for everybody else through history. He's showing he is unique. And he is worthy of our trust as Savior. There is no one born of a woman like him. Why? He's fully God and he's fully human. And he's giving us evidence. Along the way, people are going, wow. So Jesus can live for this mission as the Savior of the world or to gather a crowd. And he's got a crowd coming. Man, he's got the whole world at his door. And what does, he, what does he do in verse 35? Here's what he does. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house. Remember, that's where they were coming, at his door, and went away where? To a secluded place. Jesus, why are you doing that? You need to capture this crowd. Man, Jesus, you've got them. Don't go away to a secluded place. And what was he doing? He was praying there. That's nuts. He is not capturing the moment. Well, he's got some disciples. They were in process, and they're with him, and they're understanding, and he's called them, and, 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 and they're following him, and, and they think, man, this is a bad decision. So in verses 36 and 37, they go looking for him. Simon, 
and his companions, Simon was a little impulsive, and his companions searched for him. And finally they find him, and they found him and said, dude, everyone is looking for you. What, let me translate, what are you doing in this secluded place? Remember, we have the world at the door, and you're here. Jesus, what are you thinking? And what Jesus is thinking is, I've got a mission to get this message out, to die for the sin of the world. I could care less about popularity. I could care less about the crowds. So here's what Jesus does in verse 38. He said to them, let us go where? Somewhere else. Why would you go somewhere else? You've got the crowds here. Why would you go somewhere else? Somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also. Catch this, for this is what I came for. I ain't interested. I ain't interested in playing to the crowd. The crowds come, okay, but that's, that's not going to drive what I do. What's driving me is the mission God has given me. I am living for my Father and not for the world. So I'm telling you and me, who are sucked up in this culture that affirms, did you, did you see how many, how many likes, how many, how many retweets, how many, how many, how many? We need to re- draw near to Jesus. Man, he lived this out. Jesus lived your values Impress your values. Impress you in my life. Remember we talked about a while back, grow our, our priorities and values become Jesus' priorities and values. Jesus in this area of seeking affirmation in this world, and the, would you, would you create you in me? That I might not care about this. Then in, and then when I'm called to sacrifice for you, whether it's in my giving or my praying or my fasting or my serving or whatever it is, I'm, as much as I can, I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't draw attention to myself, that doesn't, as much as I can, because I'm living for you. So 1980, I'm a sports guy, was the most dramatic sports event in my lifetime that I can remember. It was the Winter Olympics. The U.S. hockey team was maybe, 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 maybe they could squeeze out a bronze medal. But the gold was a foregone collusion. It was the Russian team. I mean, they were... They put their players in the Russian army so that they were, in effect, a professional team. They could compete against the National Hockey League All-Stars and more than hold their own. So there's just no way, and the U.S. is doing well, and they draw the Russians in the semifinal game. In the upset of upsets, they beat them. I mean, the crowd is going crazy. USA, USA. As the clock is winding down, Al Michaels is screaming who's doing the the play-by-play, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Horn goes off and they go crazy. Bedlam on the ice. Well, there's one more game left. They've got to play Finland in the gold medal game. This is for the gold and silver. They get behind, but they come back ahead. And, and by the well, middle of the third period, it's clear the U.S. outside of something really quirky happening is going to win this game. And the countdown begins. U.S.A., U.S.A. And the final horn goes off and there's pandemonium on the ice. People are everywhere. The crowd is going crazy. The U.S. was carried by their goalie, a guy named Jim Craig. For a series of games, he played out of his mind. And he was really, if you brought it down to one player, he's the guy that carried in the gold medal. But so I'm watching this. I'm a sophomore in college. I'm watching this play out, and there's pandemonium in the ice. And all of a sudden, the camera focuses in on Jim Craig. And he's draped in an American flag, and everybody's going wild around him. And he's looking up into the stands. What's he doing? 
Well, he's counting up rows to see if he can find his dad in the stands. See, in the past year, dad's wife and his mom had died. And this was a moment that uh, he shared with his dad that dedicated this thing to his dad. And, and there's all this stuff going on and people are patting him on the back and all this stuff. And, and all he's doing is he's counting out. Because he was just playing for an audience of one. Could that be a picture of us? In our service, our life, our giving, our prayer. All this stuff's going around. And we're just playing for an audience of our Heavenly Father. How are we supposed to act when we sacrifice for God as much as we can in a way that nobody knows? We're going to move to a time of communion now. And uh, we just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to necessarily be a member of this church. Um, and here's what we're doing and we're not doing. We don't believe this becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. We believe this is symbolic. We're remembering this sacrifice. The reason we can have a relationship, the reason we're even here worshiping today, the reason we can be talking about drawing near to one who lived for the Father is because Jesus gave himself on the cross. And the night before he was crucified, he, he told the, uh, the, the disciple, I want you to carry this on. In memory of me. Well, Paul has picked that truth up in his letter to the Corinthians, and he writes about it in chapter 11, verse 23, where he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to invite you to take that package and open that wafer and take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that uh, Jesus' body was broken for us. Lord, that we don't have to get sucked up into this culture that says, look at me, look at what I'm driving, look what I'm wearing, look what I'm living, look, look how many tweets, look how many, how many likes. I, we're called to so much more, and that's you. And our audience is not this world, it's you. But Jesus made that possible. He modeled that for us. Lord, we remember him. His body was broken that we could be here at this moment. And we give thanks for him in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Paul went on writing about this. It's the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to take and drink the juice. We're thankful for your blood because the fact of the matter is, as we talk about this, all of us are dirty. We have lived for this world. Did you notice me? Hey, did you happen to see? Hey, hey, hey. And you, What a trap. But you said that's, that's forgiven, that's cleansed, that's washed free. And I invite you to live a different way for the Father like I did. Jesus, thank you that you make that possible. And it was your blood shed that makes us clean. And we remember that and we're thankful for that. Amen.